This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 200, Friendship. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. For a very special episode 200, I invited three friends of the podcast. Dr. Kenny Embry is the host of the Balancing the Christian Life podcast. Adam Shanks preaches for the Edwards Lake Church of Christ in Birmingham and is the host of the Preach Impediments podcast. Jacob Hudgens preaches for the Twin City Church of Christ in my adopted hometown of College Station, Texas. In part one, we discuss exactly what sort of friend we have in Jesus. We have a great many hymns that hold up Jesus as our best friend. I've found a friend, oh such a friend. Jesus is all the world to me. I've found a friend in Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the friend of his disciples, perhaps most notably in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And of course, Jesus did exactly that in the fullest sense just a few hours afterward. But he also says in the very next verse, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Isn't that an odd thing for one friend to say to another? And how does that affect Jesus' love for me when I sin? My my go-to response on this is uh, the same as Kenny's. You know, if you listen to Kenny's podcast, he continually has the exact same reaction to almost every single question is, compare it to your family. And that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I think of when I think of this. I know we're dealing with friends, but we're also dealing with the concept of love. And the concept yeah. of love, I think, is most uh, appropriately understood in the context of the family relationship. Just like the idea of you know, Jesus saying that you die for your friends and you are my friends if you obey me, the same sort of concept in, in families. You know, with my five kids, I'm much friendlier with them when they are obeying. But that doesn't change my love for them when they are not. We tend to get along a little better when they're being who they are supposed to be, or honestly, when I'm being who I'm supposed to be as their father. But regardless of who's behaving how, we still love each other because love is not conditioned entirely, you know, really on, on behavior. Right. I think there's a relationship there. I sometimes will say to my wife, you know, you're my best friend. And what I mean there is there is a different element of the relationship that I'm emphasizing. You know, there's obviously the attraction we feel and the commitment we share, but then there's also this, that independent of all of that, we like to hang out, we have common interests and we have a certain connection. Uh, So when I, when I hear Jesus say that you're my friends, it's an invitation to me to, to an intimacy with him. It's a powerful thing. When you see that terminology used in the Old Testament, it says that God spoke to Moses face to face like a man does with his friend. There's something special about that, the way God would would connect with us and invite us up to him, which is different from the way we connect with other human beings. To say that God or Jesus would want us to be his friends is, is something unique. Uh, but I do think just like any relationship term, uh, you can you can take that to a, a point where it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because you're right. It would be weird to t- tell your friend that, hey, you can be my friend as long as you do what I tell you. Uh, but if we're going to be God's friends, there's probably going to be some unique requirements associated with that. 
And uh, so I don't, I don't see it in the same way as a, uh, a turnoff. I see it as him saying, Hey, this is the kind of thing I'm inviting you to, but you need to know this is what makes you a friend of God versus what makes you friends with the world. It's conditioned on how you choose to live your life. One more thing. My wife likes to do this. She taught me this. She said, sometimes if you are not clear on how a relationship is going, you could just tell somebody casually, hey, we're friends, aren't we? You know, and and kind of say it in a positive way. We're good friends. And that there is a power just in declaring a relationship. Hey, this is who we are. And the person then knows where they stand with you, that you're not hostile to them. You like them. You want to be with them. You want to spend time with them. And I feel like that's what God's saying. He's saying, I want you to be my friends and uh, not just followers, not just servants. I want you to be my friends. So now the ball is kind of in our court. Are we willing to to do what God's expecting so we get that? Shanks is not wrong. I, I, I relate almost everything to family. And one of the things that I would say is he, he calls them friends. He doesn't call them family. And I think there's there's something that's unique about that because friends are voluntary. You get to choose your friends and you also get to choose your enemies to a certain extent. And I think one of the things that, that Jesus is saying when he's saying that is you guys are the people that I choose to be with. There's not a higher compliment that you can give almost anybody is that I will basically make space in my life by making time for you, by giving you attention, by, by making you a priority in my life. And th- there is a certain extent to which you have to be very jealous of that and you have to guard all of those things because you're going to be talking about this in just a little bit, Hal. Those people that you intentionally and voluntarily choose to have in your life start affecting you. And it is a two-way street of influence. If you think it's only one, one, a one-way street of influence, you are sorely mistaken. Because who you choose to surround yourself with basically becomes, to some extent, your destiny. There have been several studies that, that have shown that um, you, who you choose to put yourself around, and they've done this with income levels. Uh, you will basically have a ba- about the same level of income as the people you choose to put around you. Uh, you will basically have about the same level of health. You will basically have about the same level of a lot of things based on who you choose to have around you. I think that's different than your family because I, I absolutely have chosen my wife as part of my family, but I didn't choose my kids. There's a sense of sacrifice. There's a sense of responsibility that is different with family versus friends. I think it's Jim Rohn, a business leader, that said, you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. And it's that that same idea. But what I find interesting about John 15 is that Jesus is drawing a contrast here between friends and servants. You choose your servants also. And what Jesus is doing is he's exalting the relationship that he has with these disciples because he says the very next verse, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. That idea that Kenny's talking about there with choosing is the point of the passage. I have chosen you, but I've chosen you for something better 
than what other disciples get from their rabbis. I've chosen you to a deeper, more intimate relationship. You are my friends because I have revealed to you what this is all about. And, and that, that to me is, is extraordinary. I do want to say something. You asked in the, the prompt there, Hal, about what does this mean when I sin? You're my friends if, I do what I com- if you do what I command you. But what if I don't? I think we can easily get locked into this uh, mindset that's very um, – every decision we make, everything we do, is it perfectly in line with the will of Jesus? And then everything is at stake. If Jesus is going to talk to us in relational terms, I think we need to think in relational terms about it. He is talking broadly about these are the people who have left behind their families and their jobs to follow him, and they're not always in obedience to him. You can see that throughout the Gospels, uh, but they're they're trying, and they're growing, and they're headed in his direction, and they receive his correction when they don't do what they should. That's the reason he invites them to be friends is because there's that willingness. So uh, to me, that's the non-negotiable part. Uh, When he says, if you do what I command you, it's similar to all those places where he says, you know, it's even in chapter 15 here, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, that's the expression I want. I want you to be obedient. I want you to be disciples. But I don't think that you can turn that around and say, anytime you disobey, you're out. Because the disciples themselves prove that can't be. We're all bumbling people just like they were. Uh, but which direction are we bumbling? And what do we do after we bumble? You know, are we coming back to him? Are we continuing in that relationship? Or is it something where we say, you know, this isn't for me anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. Uh, to me, that's the, the brighter line. So I don't think he's conditioning love. Uh, I do think he is instead encouraging the right posture toward him. This is uh, obedience is the way you're going to follow me and the way you're going to be friends. He's not going to have friends over the long term that are disobedient people. Well, and that kind of connects to the parenting uh, aspect also, because a lot of parents are demonized on TV drama shows and such for putting that kind of pressure on their children. And I think rightly so. I will love you as long as you do what I tell you to do. And the implication, and sometimes it's beyond an implication, if you don't do it, well, then maybe daddy and mommy aren't going to love you anymore. And and for a six-year-old, seven-year-old or whatever, that's that's extremely traumatizing. And it usually works as far as, as modifying behavior because the children are desperate to be in favor with their parents, at least when they're six or seven, they get over it eventually. But the idea of intimidating your children into compliance has a certain degree of obvious utility, but you're going to sacrifice the relationship over the long term if you maintain that kind of rules of order, as it were. And going to what Jacob was saying there, Jesus does not do that for us. Jesus does not hold this over our head. At least that's the way I read the New Testament. Other people read it differently. But the idea of as soon as you slip out of compliance, as soon as you make a a false step, we're going to just drop you in the fire like that. I don't get that picture of Jesus when I am reading the New Testament. I see someone who loves me. I see a father who loves me and is rooting for me and is willing to be merciful, eager to be merciful. 
Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing as saying that noncompliance doesn't matter. And that is a difficult line to walk, obviously. But there is no need for the Christian to live in constant fear that Jesus isn't going to be my friend anymore if I don't do what he tells me to do. The attitude of compliance is much more important, it seems to me, than line-by-line adherence to the law that he lays down for us. The quintessential passage about this is the end of Romans chapter 8, where it talks about there's nothing that can remove you from the love of God. And it even goes about giving a big, long list as to these things don't remove you from the love of God. There's nothing. And I have heard people through the years, and uh, this might not be popular for me to say, but heard people through the years say, well, but that doesn't say you can't remove yourself from the love of God. Actually, it does. I mean, it says no created thing can remove you from the love of God. And he even qualifies it in verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. So he is saying we conquer because of him. Mm-hmm. And so nothing can cause us to leave the love of God. God's going to love us regardless of whether we have obeyed him, whether we have served him, whether we have done the things we are supposed to do. Now, you take that a step further, that means God loves all of those people who have rejected him, all those people who have betrayed him, all those people who have walked away from him. All of those people are still within the love of God. God will punish those whom he loves because that's what they've asked for. You know, but you like you look through all of that and you realize, you know, this really isn't an, an, a condition for his love. It's a condition for the type of relationship we will share with God. You know, God can love me whether I have chosen to be his friend or not. Yeah. He chose me for friendship. But like Kenny said earlier, friendship goes both ways. And we kind of have to recognize that's true with Jesus also. The the love of God is connected to the favor of God, but it is not the same thing as yes. the favor of God. We have very sentimental, very gushy, mushy feelings about love. Uh, when I think of love, I often think of my wife's Hallmark movies. But the thing about it is, is that's not love. No. Um, and, and when I think about how I love my children, and again, Shanks, I'm going to go right here for you. Uh, that. <laughs> The thing about it is, is love for my children doesn't look like like a lot. They would not like me in times that I'm loving them the most. One of the arguments that I've made, I don't know, three or four times recently, is that Jesus demonstrates his love of the Pharisees the best in Matthew 23, where he gives them the sharpest criticism. That is love. That is a perfected form of love because what he's doing is laying out for them, this is how you improve. This is what needs to change. God loves us despite ourselves. It's not rule compliance that his love is conditioned on, but it's intimacy. Intimacy is something you get to choose. And intimacy, (laughs) lucky for you guys, this was what my dissertation was about. Intimacy has things that we think and are and things that we do. We only tell the most vulnerable stories to really close friends. Why? Because that becomes something that they can hold over our head if they so choose. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we trust our friends 
more. Do I love my friends? Absolutely. But God tells me to love my enemies as well, but he doesn't tell me to tell them my deepest, darkest secrets. I think the other thing when it comes to that idea of intimacy, we often feel a powerful urge to reciprocate in intimate relationships. I can love somebody and not reciprocate evil for evil, but also not reciprocate what I probably ought to, which is helping them out when they're not doing anything for me, anything good for me. This is more than just a status that he's inviting us to. Like you're talking about actions and and uh, intimacy, and and Adam alluded to earlier the part of the text where he says, you know, servant doesn't know, but you know yeah. what I'm doing, and you know the secrets here. He's sharing something with us, which it, again is inviting us to intimacy. There is also, and this is where the love versus approval or you know favor of God is an important distinction. I don't know that we think about friendship in this this kind of way in our culture today, where friendship is about, yes, people know me and know me well, and they also therefore have leverage over me and can call me out about things or can challenge me. And I take that differently because you know me. I have had people attack me or things that I've said from afar. I don't know them. They don't even know the details of my life. They just know I said something they didn't like. And so they attack me. That doesn't mean a lot to me. But when you know me well and you come at me, it has an impact. And it is that that impact that says, okay, does this person have the right to speak this to me? That's the feeling. Are they close enough? Are they friends? And here is Jesus. You see the way he takes these men and he speaks into their life and he, he looks them in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. And he looks them in the eye and he says, guys, you can't be trying to lord it over each other. This will not work. You got to drop this. You're not doing right. That's also love, but it's a, a function of, of a friendship and an intimate relationship. I think we need that not just from people. God is saying, you need that from me. You need to be on a regular basis engaging with me in this intimate way so that I can speak into your life the things that you need and I can change you the way I want to change you. This is why I think losing friends where our society has become more disconnected, we don't know people as well, we're not in face-to-face communication as often, it means that we then lose this sense of this is what I want from God too. Not only the feeling of closeness, not just a feeling, but also the way a real healthy, intimate relationship should work. Yeah. And on the topic of intimacy, I think this is something else that our modern pop religious culture deliberately misses. And Jesus doesn't deal with it specifically much in John 15, but it's baked into everything that he ever says to his disciples. There is a built-in gap between the master and the disciple that cannot be overcome, that does not limit the, well, it does limit the friendship. It does not negate the friendship, but there is a sense in which we think of friends as being equals and, and co-participants and on a level with one another. And to a certain degree, of course, that's true. Jesus reaches out to us on that level. He calls us friends, but there is a sense in which we are never going to be equal. And we see that in other relationships, or we used to 
and maybe Kenny could speak to this a little bit. Uh, there is a gap yeah. between teachers and professor, teachers and students, professors and students, that maybe over twenty or thirty years can be ninety ninety five percent overcome. I don't know. I would tend to think that there's always going to be that distance because of the nature of the relationship, because of where it started. There is always going to be the one who was the teacher and the one who was the student. That's the case with parenting. You know, I can I can talk family too. You know, it's not just Kenny. The <laughs> drive for parents to be friends with their kids may come from a good place and may be valid in a certain sense, but when we erase or virtually erase the built-in gap between parents and children, and we act like we are co-equals somehow, even when the children are still in the house, that's ridiculous. That that denies very basic fundamental truths about the relationship. You watch movies about the president, for instance, and the president has these, these close associates that he's known for 20 or 30 years and who know all of his, all the skeletons in his closet and where all the bodies are buried and everything. And this person insists on calling him Mr. President at all hours of the day, every single time. And it drives the president nuts. And he says, that's who you are. It's not who you used to be. We used to have a different relationship. This is who we are now. And this is who we are going to be forever. I think there's something important to that, to not bring Jesus so far down to our level that we forget that he's Lord. I was just reading this morning about... uh Luke 5, where Jesus tells Peter to let your nets out, and he's kind of reluctant. And then he brings in the big catch of fish, and he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The distance. Mm -hmm. And Jesus responds with a do not be afraid, which is the same thing the angels said in Luke 1. You're in the presence of something, but you can you can be okay. I'm not going to hurt you. There's the distance you're talking about. And I do think Peter, from time to time, battles a level of comfort with Jesus that's a little inappropriate. He feels like he can rebuke Jesus, and he feels like he can tell Jesus what he's supposed to do and be. But Jesus reestablishes that. So I, I think it's a fair point. Friends here doesn't mean friends in, in all the ways we, we think of it, uh, because it's certainly not an equal friendship. BJ Sipe was one of my students, and he still has a hard time calling me Kenny. And I kind of get that, and I kind of appreciate that. It's it's a level of respect, and, and one of the things that I, I worry about this society is is that we have tried to profane basically everything. And it, it comes with a postmodernist society. The postmodernists didn't like hierarchies, that there are some things that are good, that are intrinsically good, and there are some things that are not quite as good or, or bad. And that's one of the, they just call everything different. And one of the things that when, when you look at a Christian point of view, we worship God definitely because he deserves it, but of course he deserves it. But the best reason to worship God is he is so much better than you are. And when you worship him, he doesn't need it, never needed it. We do. Because whenever we try to buck against that, we're just hurting ourselves. When we worship God, we recognize what problems we have in our lives. When we worship ourselves, we delude ourselves about what's really working and what's not, when we are our own standard, we will never rise to excellence. We will only rise to mediocrity 
if we're that lucky. So I, I've wondered a little bit about this particular topic uh, just in my own study because it seems that what Jesus is doing here with his last moments in John chapter 15 is kind of lessening the distance. You know, we always talk about remember, remember this, you know, how great he is. And like the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 5, God is in heaven, we are on earth, let our words be few. And there is that incredible distance. Uh, I'm reminded of Jesus's parable over in Luke chapter 17, where he talked about the servants and the master comes in and the servants, you know, they don't sit down and expect to, you know, anything other than they get up, they do their job. He says there, does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded in the same way when you've done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. But that idea of master servant is the very idea that Jesus is dealing with in John 15, because he's saying, I no longer consider you servants. I call you friends. I've chosen you. You are closer to me than a mere servant. And so while I do think there is on our side a respect that needs to be uh, maintained and an understanding of his greatness, I do think that on God's side, there is an acceptance that as our relationship changes from merely being creator-creation to father-son, there is a, a bringing together of two parties. He is still better, obviously. He is still worthy of worship and praise. Uh, I by no means rub elbows with the creators of the heaven, you know, uh, heavens and earth, but I am allowed to climb in his lap. I was reading a book recently called When the Church Was a Family by, I think it's Joseph Hellerman. And he makes the point in there that God is never, or Jesus is never called our personal Lord and Savior. And that there is probably a going too far with that idea by certain denominations out there. But then I look at John 15 and I go, but he is most definitely personal. And I think we need to be aware of that, not because we've earned it, not because we are good, not because we deserve it, but because he is generous in offering us a relationship that is just absolutely flabbergasting. What an amazing opportunity we have to know him that way. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.